I'm Elizabeth Hunterton, and this is Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. For the first time in my life, I asked myself, was it not my birth mother who left me at the airport? Because every headline my entire life has said birth mother leaves baby at the airport. Like it's one of the few facts I have. So now that just dismantled the little tiny bit of identity I have shattered. And then the other question became, did the woman who leave left me at the airport do it with permission? from biological mother number four, or did she do it on her own volition? Because if she did it without permission, that is kidnapping. And there is no statute of limitations on kidnapping. Because I was likely born in California and she took me to the Reno airport in Nevada, now we have trafficked a child across state lines. And now that's federal. And there's also no statute of limitations on that. So now I'm going through this. I'm like, what am I gonna do? Like, I don't want her to be criminalized for this. At the same time, like, I know she shouldn't have taken me. Like, I get that too. What am I going to do? So I decide to reach out to number five, the woman I think left me at the airport. So I, up until that point, Will, I had thought that this process was harder on my friends than it was on me because people would ask like, how are you feeling? How are you doing? I was like, guys, I'm good. Like I've had my entire life to get, to be prepared for this. And then when it came time to write the letter to number five, I knew that day, this was not harder on anyone on this planet than it is on me because that process gutted me. I, it was so indescribably painful. And so I Googled, how do you write a letter to a biological relative? And surprisingly, there were a lot of websites that had all of this advice, like, you know, don't say you've had too good of a life because then they'll feel um, resentful. Don't say that they, that you've had too bad of a life because then they'll feel guilty. Don't say that. And so I was trying to find, follow all these rules. And I was like starting to have a panic attack because it was just so many rules. And I, I felt really confined by it. So I sent a text to my friend that said, Hey, she had recently reunited, uh, reunified with her biological aunt. And I said, Hey, when you wrote a letter to your aunt. Was it this? Was it that? Was it this? And thankfully she recognized a cry for help because she called me immediately. And well, those tears came from so deep inside. I just lost it. And I was screaming and I was like, I get it. I might be the, the worst thing that somebody that happened to somebody. I might be the worst mistake, their biggest regret. And I'm a good person. And none of that may matter because at the end of the day, I could ask this one. I don't ask them for anything. The one question I have, are you my biological mother? She may not even think I'm worth a response. Yeah. I'm not even worth a freaking response. And that reality pained me so deeply and I'm crying and I'm yelling and my friend just lets me pour out the pain. And, and I said, you know, I get it. Like simply because I didn't die the day I was born, I can bring enough shame to destroy a family. 
I get I wanna, it. I want to back up just a moment to your friend because I don't want to rush past that part. In that moment, she supported you by listening. By what listening. else did she offer to you? She she first let me just pour out my pain in a judgment-free, safe zone, even though it was illogical, even though it was irrational, not factual, and pure emotion. She let me just pour it all out. And then she gave me the reality, the dose of reality that I needed that changed my life. She said, listen, you're a badass. You're the strongest person I know, the most powerful person I know. And I was like, okay. And she was like, and even so, you do not have the power to bring shame. And I was like, say what now? (laughs) She said, she said, you don't have that ability. Their shame is their choice, just as your shame is your choice. You do not possess that power to bring shame. You're just not that powerful, sweetie. And I sat there for a second and I was like, oh my gosh, you're right. And I, I really, I reflected on that for some time and I realized, you know, with shame, you know, I was molested by my babysitter's daughter for the first time when I was five years old. And she had told me if I told anyone what would happen, I would be taken to another airport and I would never see my parents again. And so at five years old, I was just that kid that was strong enough to pick up shame and scared enough to put it on. And where most people put on shame to protect themselves from hurt, I mean, to put on armor to protect, they put on armor to protect themselves from shame. I picked up shame and I wore it as armor. And what it did for me, shame justified every trauma I ever experienced. It convinced me that I deserved to be raped when I was in college. It convinced me that I deserved to be molested. It convinced me that I was so unlovable. My own birth mother left me at the airport. Like it, it gave me this narrative that really made me, and I don't want to say that I was immune to pain because I wasn't, I just made it so small that I could justify it and just move on with my life, even though that wasn't healing, that wasn't helpful. And I, it took years for me to unravel a lot of that. But that night, and it was September 13th, and I remember it like it was yesterday, I sat just on the other side of this wall on my balcony and said, I'm putting down shame. I'm taking it off. It has hurt and been painful for so long, and I pretended it fit. I pretended I deserved to wear it. Sometimes I shined it up really nicely to look like courage. It's just shame, and I'm, I'm done wearing it. I took it off, I put it down, and I have not picked it up since. And that night, I remember asking myself, what if she doesn't answer me back? But the response was so different because shame was not the one answering it. It was one of the most top three most powerful moments of my life, so transformative because it was that moment that made me unrecognizable from September 13th to September 14th, a completely different human being. And, and while I was hopeful and I had no shame, 
I still live with PTSD, anxiety, and depression. And that triggered me to profound depression. And I was depressed for, I think it was 44 days, 44 days in the bowels of depression. And, and I gave myself a lot of grace for the first time in my life. Um, I knew I would get out of it and I knew I wanted to get out of it, but I also knew I was not getting out of depression today, tomorrow, or any day soon. Um, and instead I folded inward and really showed myself compassion for the first time, um, rather than letting shame meet me there. So before we get to number four, mm -hmm. I just want to highlight that Miss Nevada dealt with depression, with shame, has experienced trauma upon trauma upon trauma and become numb in a sense to the pain of life. We didn't even get to talk about the racism you experienced and those incidents. But I just want, I want it to be evident as if it's not, that you don't know what a person is dealing with, has dealt with, or gone through. No, and you don't know that somebody who seems to have it all has such debil debilitating imposter syndrome, they're just trying to function through each day. I mean, my imposter syndrome up until I would even say now, I mean, I have hints of it, but I think that people, you're right. They put a crown on my head and everybody thought I had the confidence or even the ability to see the reflection everybody else saw. I knew too many ugly things that had happened to me and bad choices I had made and mistakes. And, um, and I had this narrative and this shame and these mental illnesses. And, and that's why I always tell people to be kind because kindness is no one's trigger. And any one of those 44 days when I'm in the bowels of depression, the kindness from somebody makes the difference between an unbearable day and a bearable day. And that's the power of kindness. And it was the kindness of a stranger that rewrote my narrative. You know, like you just never know what your dose of kindness can do to somebody. It can change someone's life. It can save someone's life. Um, it can keep that person out of bed. Um, and that was really what happened. It was, you know, when I would get out of bed and I would convince myself to go to the park or take a walk, somebody saying good morning would convince me like, okay, well, maybe we'll take another walk tomorrow and maybe somebody else will say good morning. You know, like just these little, because what kindness does and compassion does is it lends your strength to others. And sometimes that person is so depleted and has none left of their own that your little loan, just your your little allocation of strength will get that person through until the next one. And, um, and I was so grateful, but also I think what was really beautiful is that for the first time, shame didn't treat my depression, self-love did. And for self-love to really take the reins and meet me there and allow me to extend grace to myself and had a very different narrative than shame does. It was, um, that to me was one of the most beautiful. And it also gave me permission to ask for help. And I reached out to a lot of people who helped, helped to get me to where I needed to get out of that well um, of depression. I love that you said shame didn't treat the depression this time. It was self-love. Yeah. That's big. It was, and I've always told people, you know, with, with depression and anxiety and <clears throat> PTSD, like it does feel like at any given minute, moment, I'm inches away from a well. 
a really deep, dark well. And you might look at, be able to look into it and say like, wow, that's really dark and scary. But that bottom 10 feet is reserved only for me. I'm the only person that can get down there. And it's slick and it's scary and it's sad and it's dark. And that's where my nightmares live. And the walls are, are smooth. And I know that if I can just reach 10 feet, one inch, there's a hand grip, there's a rope, there's somebody waiting to pull me out. But my responsibility is to get out of those bottom 10 feet. And I'm the only one who can do it. And sometimes I can parkour my way right out of there. But there are days like this where I know I'm just going to have to sit at the bottom of the well and regain my strength and rest and be still and forgive myself and forgive others and stop waiting for apologies that may never come, whether I'm owed or not. And, and I did that for 44 days. I sat in the bottom of that well, knowing we're going to get out, but not today. Yeah. It's, it's not going to happen today. And I wasn't as wounded because I wasn't down there by myself with shame for 44 days. Usually shame would do quite a number on me down there. Um, but I got, I reached the, the 10 foot one inch on the 44th day and I was okay. And I had healed and I, I had really sat with a lot of emotions that I would usually try to fast forward by um, or walk around or avoid or negate or you know, ignore or diminish. And I sat with each one of them, um, which was really important. And, um, so yeah, that was, that was just a very different experience being in the well with self-love rather than with shame. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That's, that's okay. powerful. Thank you. Thank All right. So number four, we've been waiting yeah. with bated breath. <laughs> so I get out of the well, I get out of this well and I, I handwrite the letter untethered by shame, I write the letter to number five. And I ask her the question, are you my birth mother or are you my aunt? And I meant to send it certified mail. I forgot. I put it in the mailbox and I was like, whatever, just get closer to her and further from me. And a few days later, I feel it. And I was like, they got the letter. And because there was the weight of her world on my shoulders, the confusion that wasn't mine. And a few hours later, I get this text message. Hi, Elizabeth, it's me, I'm your cousin. My mom got your letter. And I was like, your mom got my letter. Your mom is five. Her, okay, you're my cousin, it's four, it's four. I knew it was four, I knew it. And so she was like, can you talk today at 3.30? And I was like, yes, yes, I can. And so anytime I have a conversation um, with a biological relative, I go in my closet and like, I have my little setup, I sit on the floor and it's just my safe place. I'm not making a case for normalcy. It's just what I do. Hey, Moira Rose does that. So <laughs> you're in company. Yeah, who am I hurting? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was sitting in the closet, ready for our conversation. And she writes to me, so we knew my, my aunt had a baby and that she had given up for adoption. This is the first we're hearing about the airport though. And I was like, what? Your mom is the one that left me at the airport. And she was like, no, she's not. And I say, wait, but if your mom didn't leave me at the airport and four had short hair, what's going on? And I said, well, you know, I know there's no record of me at a hospital. She's like, that's not true. We have your birth certificate what? Wow. What? 
in that, I remember I was sitting there and I was like, what is this parallel universe? And I was like, okay, don't look crazy. Don't act crazy. Your entire world right now is flipping upside down. Like just stay steady. And I was like, wait, I'm sorry. I think it sounded like you said you had my birth certificate. And she was like, yeah, I think there's one around here somewhere. And I said, you know what day I was born? Like, you know what decade I was born? You know where I was born? All of these unicorn questions I never thought I would have an answer to. You know, I was given a name. It, like, you know me before I came became Jane Doe? Like that in all of this was probably the craziest thing for me because it flew in the face of everything I knew, which is there is no record of me being born in a hospital. So, so I was like, okay, okay. And she's like, I'll try to find it for you. I was like, uh, okay. And she was like, yeah, so your birth mother does know about the letter. And I was like, how is she? And she said, this is a lot for her. She has never told a soul this secret in 40 years. We're all getting together as a family tomorrow. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I said to my cousin, I said, can you please do me a huge favor? And she was like, yeah, anything. And I said, please don't you or anyone else add to her guilt or shame. She has enough. Everything she possibly could have wanted for me, I've had. I have never harbored any negative emotions towards her. And I don't believe that anybody gets to be more upset with her than I am. So please make this easier for her and not harder. So my cousin starts crying and she was just like, how do you have so much compassion to her? And I was like, I've never had anything but compassion for her. Everything she wanted, I have. And that doesn't happen without her selflessness. So no, I'm not upset with her. And she was like, okay, I will make sure nobody adds to that. And, and I think that's the other takeaway is it's not our job to add guilt and shame to people. We have enough. Like we don't, nobody needs to add that to anybody else. And so she was like, I'll call you tomorrow after we talk. And I said, okay. So the whole day I'm just like pacing around, like what, what are they saying? What's going on? And she calls me at four 30 and she said, okay, today was a heavy day. Um, your birth mother wants to reach out to you. And she wants to call you, but she's too emotional. So she's going to send you an email. And I said, okay. So at 621, I get this email and it says, I knew this day was coming and this issue might arise. Um, my father was very cruel to me and would have been so much worse to you. I also knew I didn't have the mental, emotional, physical, or financial ability to care for you the way I thought you deserved. So I gave you to my roommate. Again, I've been casting this story my entire life. Never casted a roommate with long black wow. hair. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, okay, okay, your roommate, all right. And like before I could even process that, she closes the email by confirming probably my worst fear. The fear that has brought me to panic attack more times than I care to admit, just one outcome I was not okay with. Um, one so painful, like I can't, I can't even um, talk about it. But I sat there that night just trying to take it all in and kind of 
trying to find some sense of stability when I've just been uppercut jabbed and hit with a freaking Mack truck. And I'm just sitting there like, okay. Um, should I have not known this? Like, should I have just stopped before this happened? And, you know, that night I, um, I started cleaning cause that's what I do when I'm upset. And I, like, I clean my, I'm cleaning the board, my, my son's rooms while they're sleeping. I clean the loft. I clean downstairs. Like I'm cleaning the whole house. And at three o'clock in the morning, I'm standing in the garage and I'm like about to pass out. And I come to the conclusion. I'm like, well, we can't clean the garage tonight. I mean, we can start, but we're not going to finish it. And so <laughs> like, I can't stand right now. It, it's time to go to bed. And I go upstairs and and I get all of my son's biggest stuffed animals and I throw them on the couch and I get my teddy bear and I crawl under the stuffed animals and I bury myself and I get very angry with God. And I was just like, God, how could you do this? Like I have done everything you've ever asked and I've tried to be a good person. And you knew there were three things I was afraid of, three things that I couldn't survive and you gave it to me anyway. You are not a good God. You are not a merciful God. You are not my God. And I was so upset because I was like, you've given me so much. You, you knew I wouldn't survive this. And you just, and you gave it to me anyway. Like it seemed so cruel and so unfair. And I was so angry. And at one point, I guess I fell asleep and my husband came up and, and he was like, are you okay? And, and well, I don't know what I was saying. I don't, it was just the pain talking and I, I can't even remember what I said, but his eyes filled up with tears and he was like, yeah, I think you need to go to bed. Um, I think you need to go to bed. And I said, okay, okay. And I came upstairs and, you know, I called my friend and and everybody I talked to that day had had to hear me talk from my deepest, darkest depth. And, you know, again, I know PTSD, so I know fear and I struggle with depression. So I know, I know sadness. I have never in my life experienced something so purely painful, just pain, not sadness, not fear, not shame, just pain. And, and I stayed there for days. Um, and there were so many times I looked at that outcome that I have feared my entire life. And I looked in the eye and I would think to myself, I have been afraid of you my entire life. I have, you have scared me to the point of panic attack without warning. Um, but here we are and you're not scary. You are the most painful thing I have ever experienced and I hope I survive you, but I don't know that I will because the pain was that powerful. Yeah. And, and I knew, you know, it wasn't like the well, like where I knew I could get out. It was, I hope I do. And if I don't, maybe that's okay too. I don't know. And I, you know, after two days in bed and poorly timed, I, I pulled out my adoption paperwork because I'm an emotional cutter and figured, well, 
let's go ahead and pile it all on. And I pulled out my paperwork and I was looking through it. And I saw the letter where my parents had gotten approved to be adoptive parents. And they, they had gotten approved the month before they got me. And in their approval letter, it says, due to the overwhelming desire to adopt children and the shortage of adoptable children, it will be three years, upwards of 36 months before we send a social worker to your home to deem if you would be appropriate adoptive parents. Upon approval, 36 months from now, it will be another 18 months before you will receive a potential adoptive child. And so I was looking at that and I said, how did they bypass a four and a half year waiting list? Because they got me less than a month later. And I was looking through the paperwork and I was like, oh, here it is. Okay. They had to get an exception from a judge because every single parent who was approved to be an adoptive parent and every single parent who'd been on that waiting list longer than 28 days said no. No, they were not willing to adopt a black baby. Cool. I'm like legit like the least wanted baby ever. That's that's great. <laughs> oh. And so I, when when you saw that did that further deflate kind of your emotional state or how did you feel with that piece? It it just added to the pain. It just they're like it's like you're already drowning. You thought the you thought the water was a thousand feet deep. Actually it's two thousand. And it was it that's all I could do. And I was like, okay. Your own mother didn't want you. Neither did anyone on the list. All right, time to get back in bed. And I got back in bed and I just I remember, you know, the six words from her email and my own narrative, like you are the least wanted person ever. Like everyone's life would have been easier if you just died the day you were born. And it was like, I stayed there for days. just not, not because I didn't want to get out. I, I just couldn't like, it was just so painful. To put this in context, this isn't something that happened before you had your sons. This isn't something that happened before you got your crown or before you've done the work that you've done and gotten your accolades. This is recent. So this you felt unwanted in spite of having all of these people, things, attachments that most people would derive, derive worth from. Oh, yeah. And, and it was... It was so, the magnitude of it all was so big, nothing else was on my radar. My sons, nothing. It was, wow. And not shame, just like, okay, this is what it is. A whole list of people didn't want you. So when you talk to your, your actual birth mom, what was the first words that you said or that she said? How did that part happen? So... So a few days later, you know, I started, I decided to get out of bed and leave my house and meet with people and had a conversation with my birth mother's sister and my biological father, my new cousin, and just kind of started to address what she had said in her email. And what I, what I ultimately concluded was, I don't know that I agree with her and I don't know that it's actually true, but it's her truth and that's okay. Um, nobody else seems to think that, that it is true and that's okay. 
And I said, so I'm just going to give her space truth without judging her, allow her to be exactly who she is. I'm going to be exactly who I am. My biological father is going to be exactly who he was. And we end up exchanging emails back and forth, my birth mother and I. And I just said, you know, for what it, my first message to her was like, for what it's worth, I've never harbored any negative emotion towards you. Um, and I want to thank you because I've had the most beautiful life anyone could possibly hope for. And, and she wrote back, I thought you would hate me. And I was like, no, I've never hated you. I could never. And it, what ended up happening is she started going to therapy regularly. She went every week. She started healing. And I was just told yesterday for the first time in her life. So when she, so she thought she, her roommate had taken me to an adoption agency. When she found out that I was left at the airport, she had a mental breakdown, was discharged from the military, moved back in with her verbally abusive father and lived there every single day until last year when he passed away. And so she has lived in her childhood room since 1980. And in her 65 years, there's only a year and a half when she did not live in that verbally abusive home. And I was told yesterday, she bought a condo in the city I was born. Uh, so she is going back there. She's getting out of her father's house and she is starting her life because she's now giving herself permission to live. Um, her life really did stand still in 1980 when she, when she found out I'd been left at the airport. And, um, and when I look back at it, well, I really, I think when she gave me to her, her roommate, her roommate probably did try to take me to an adoption agency and the adoption agency said, no, we're not taking a black baby because we can't place black babies. I mean, a whole list said no. Um, but my parents said yes. And I ended up with the parents that I was supposed to have and um, for which I'm so grateful. And my birth mother now, we exchange an occasional text or, or email, and I don't know what our relationship will become, but whatever it is will be perfect. Um, luckily, I don't have to put any unfair or unrealistic expectations on her because I have a mom. I have an amazing mom. And, and my mom, like our hope is that we get to meet her this year and my mom gets to thank her. Um, and I get to give my mom that gift and the two of us get to give my birth mother the healing that she needs. And it's really beautiful how it's kind of flown, you know, fl uh, flowed through all three of us um, so perfectly and so beautifully. But in the end, it's this really, most people don't get a story this riveting with so many twists and turns without having a villain. And here I've been given this crazy, interesting, fascinating, beautiful, villainless story. And how lucky am I, you know, that I, I'm on the other side of it now and I can see the perfection in all of it. And everything had to happen exactly the way it did, when it did, how it did, why it did. Um, and now that I'm on the other side, I can say, I've been given this perfect story. So perfect on so many levels. I get this perfect birth mother who doesn't threaten any of my mom's insecurities. And my mom deserves that. Um, she gets to know that 
I've had an amazing life and everything she ever wanted, I got. So she made the right choice. Um, she marvels because she's a little awkward. Like her mind just doesn't work the way that most people's does, but she's, she has a very good heart. And she has said, she was like, I never thought anything to do with me would have beauty and eloquence and accomplishment and a success. Look at you. The fact that you could come from me and everyone in her family was like, I can't believe four, huh? (laughs) You know? And, and so for her, it's also redemption, you know, look what her daughter has accomplished. And it's, um, it's all so beautiful. And then the cousin who'd reached out to me, we talk a couple times a week. Like we just adore each other. And, and biological, I got Thanksgiving with biological mother number one and two's family. And I got to see them. I mean, through this journey, just so much acceptance and beauty. And I mean, again, this perfect story, um, so incredibly painful. And I haven't the words to describe the pain of it all. And I just remember my friend would say like, so how do you feel? And I was like, all of it. I feel everything, every emotion that's ever been felt. I feel it. And she was like, like sorrow. Yep. Yep. That's there. relief. Yep. Mm -hmm. Happy. Yeah. All of it. Everything that everything, every emotion under the sun. Yes. I feel it on steroids. I can, I can't name all of them. I'm not familiar with everyone. Um, but yeah, they're all there. All of them, (laughs) you know, um, but more than anything, so grateful, so incredibly grateful that this crazy story has the beauty that it does. It's just in a million lifetimes, I'll never know what I did to get this story. It's like, what a blessing. We can leave it there. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today and for sharing your story. Thank you. So many lessons. I mean, we'll have to dissect this for for years to come. (laughs) It's so many great pieces in there and your transparency and your strength and vulnerability. There's strength in vulnerability. So thank you for all of it. You say you feel all of it. Well, I think we're feeling a lot of it, if not all of it at this time. So again, just thank you. No, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. And I appreciate for the message that you share with the community. It's, well, I think it's more needed than, than ever. Coming up on Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. So all of this is my process to, for me to stay grounded and for me to acknowledge that I'm human and that I have emotions. At the same time, I'm intentional about staying true to myself. 